personal thank you from me um, to uh, all of you just for making the Trinity crowd feel so welcome over the last week or so. Last Sunday was really uh, special. I felt really honored to be part of this family, um, just to see the way that uh, those guys from England, from that strange place over the water, were just given such a, a warm welcome here. They, um, Peter said to me afterwards, he's traveled quite widely uh, around the world, and he said that he's very rarely been to a church where the affections of Jesus were just so evident, uh, just the warmth and love that there is in this body for people who we don't even really know. Um, so thank you, and bless God, that's God's spirit working among us. Very encouraging. Um, we are starting something new today. I'm starting our summer series, and uh, that means that you're going to get somewhat of an introductory uh, sermon here. Um, and um, I just ought to give you then as a kind of uh, public uh, announcement, the introduction to this sermon is somewhat long. Um, so we are going to stand and read our Bibles, but it's going to be about 15 minutes before we get there. Um, but I just want to tee this thing up well. Um, so uh, don't be dismayed. We are going to uh, get into the Bible text together. So uh, with all that said, let's begin with prayer. Heaven, Heavenly Father, we are hungry for you and hungry without you. Uh, we are lost in this world without you. Uh, you've made us for yourself. And um, we need your life coursing through us. We need your voice speaking to us. We need your word feeding and animating us. Um, the world around us doesn't tell us that. It tells us that it's good to be Independent, that it's good to be our own masters, that it's good to be our own gods. But God, we come into this room this morning saying no to that. We are sheep. We need to hear the voice of our shepherd. And we pray that you would be present by your spirit amongst us, that we might hear you and be equipped by you, that we might be encouraged by you, uh, that we might be sent out to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so as I said, this morning we're starting a new nine-week series. It's going to last us through the remainder of the summer. Uh, Now, as most of you know, our modus operandi here at Crossroads um, involves working our way for the main through complete Bible books. Uh, Last summer, you'll remember, we worked our way through Ephesians. Uh, Then in the uh, fall and in the winter, we uh, marched our way all the way through Matthew's Gospel. Uh, In the spring, we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians. And there are some good reasons for the uh, fact that we do things that way. As a teaching team, uh, we feel very much that it keeps us honest. Uh, It forces us to get to grips with each passage that we preach in its context so that we can be as sure as we can that what we're handing on to you is exactly what it was that God intended. Um, It also forces us to confront the difficult passages in Scripture uh, and uh, not just gravitate towards the easy ones. Certainly there were quite a few texts in that 1 Corinthians series that I can't imagine any of us actually choosing to preach on uh, unless we put ourselves under that constraint to hear everything that God had to say in that uh, wonderful but challenging letter. Uh, but we um, uh, do that also because we think it's not just good for us as teachers but good for us as a whole body. You see, part of what we're going for when we gather together on Sundays in this church is to model what all of us are trying to go for in the week. We preach our way through complete Bible books because uh, we want to see every one of us equipped to engage with the whole testimony of God's word uh, on our own at home. 
because we believe that if we've got our noses in God's word and if we're confronting ourselves uh, with the difficult text and we're uh, equipped to look at the context in which all the passages fall, that God will give us a clearer insight into who he is and what he's about and that we will be better equipped to serve our neighbours as a result. So preaching through Bible books is uh, our norm. Uh, We feel convinced that that's a healthy norm, Uh, but it's not the only way to rock, right? Um, You see, our conviction as Christians is not just that uh, God spoke to individual Bible authors and gave each one of them a coherent, discreet little message uh, to share in what they wrote. Our conviction as Christians is that God oversaw the writing of the whole Bible and that the whole thing uh, has a coherent message. It's really an amazing thing to believe. Only God could do that. And yet that is uh, what we believe, uh, mainly because it's what Jesus himself says. In Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, he said to his disciples, or we read that uh, walking with his disciples, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Despite the fact that the Bible was written over a period of more than 1,500 years uh, in three different languages, probably by about 40 different human authors, we believe the remarkable claim that it's a single coherent story that points towards Jesus Christ. And that means that alongside understanding individual Bible books, uh, we also have the joy and the responsibility of teasing out and understanding the themes that hold them together, right? The individual books of the Bible are maybe a bit like railroad stations connected by a single unbroken track, Uh, that's heading towards Jesus as its ultimate destination. And if all we know about these stations is how they look in isolation, you know, if we know how each one of them is decorated and how many rooms it has, uh, but we don't know where the inbound passengers are coming from or where the outbound passengers are going to, we're kind of missing the point, aren't we? And so in addition to looking at Bible passages and Bible books on their own, we need to understand the themes that join them together. Uh, into the single grand story that God is setting out to teach. And so um, occasionally we think it's helpful for us to step back from the individual Bible books and go on a kind of fast-paced train journey through the whole thing to help us get a feel for the shape and direction of the track. You might remember about 18 months ago we did something like this, looking at the theme of kingship working its way through the Bible from uh, Saul and David and Solomon through all those kings of the Old Testament all the way to Jesus. And this summer we're going to do something similar. You see, the idea of kingship isn't the only thing that links that Jesus story together all the way through the Bible. The Bible points us forward to Jesus uh, through the story of God's people, Israel. Uh, The Bible points us forward uh, to Jesus through the story of God's special place, the land of Canaan, and then pointing forward to heaven. The Bible points us forward to Jesus through the story of God's blessing, his presence with his people, his rule over his people. We see Jesus in the rituals of the Old Testament. We see Jesus in the structures of the Old Testament. We see him in the laws of the Old Testament. And a kingship isn't the only human role that points us forward to Jesus either. Uh, You see, the Bible also presents Jesus to us as a prophet and a priest And these roles are all fundamental to our understanding of Jesus' mission and his identity when he comes. In fact, in the minds of the people of Israel in Jesus' day, prophet, priest and king were the three bullet points 
uh, on the job description for the most important vacant position in all history, the position of Messiah. We can't understand Jesus truly if we haven't grasped what uh, the expectations for each of those roles really look like. And so for this series, we thought that we would uh, uh, dive into that threesome again and we would knock off another one. We've done Kings. Uh, we thought we would knock off a second and come back for the third one maybe at some point in the future. Should we do prophets or priests? We decided on priests. Um, so for the next nine weeks, we're going to be riding the priesthood train down the Genesis to Revelation mainline uh, and hopefully seeing how it shapes our understanding of the whole story and how we need to live in response. Everybody good with that? Because this is what we're doing anyway, so you kind of got to be doing it. <laughs> Um, so let's talk about priests. Now we're going to have a bit of fun here. I uh, immediately wonder what it is that comes into your mind when you hear me say priests as a, as a theme. And uh, to cater for the different learning styles that I'm sure are represented uh, in this room, what I thought we would do, um, I've put little cards down on I think every other uh, chair in, the, in the, uh, the gym here and pencils. And uh, for those of you who are more uh, verbal, uh, I thought maybe you might like to write down a few words that come into your mind when I say the word priest. But for those of you who are for more visual, I thought that maybe you might like to draw a picture of what comes into your mind when I say the word priest. So I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to do that, um, and then we'll share some of them together, because it would be really great to know what our starting point looks like. So you think about words and maybe draw some pictures, and uh, then I'll start calling some out for, from you. All right, so I know the drawers are going to take a bit more time, but let's hear some of the wordsmiths. So words that priests make you think of. Catholic. Catholic, all right. <laughs> Sorry? Temple. Temple. Woohoo, very good. Someone's been reading their Bible. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Thank you, Randy. Excellent. Intercessor. Mediator. Mediator. Wow, we're getting some. Levi. Okay, the, yep, the, uh, the priestly tribe of the... Uh, uh, the people of Israel performs atonement. atonement. Thank you, Carol. Wonderful. Altar. Altar. Great. So we can sacrifice atonement, altar, some brilliant biblical concepts here. The Holy of Holies, where the priest ministers. Sorry, I didn't hear that one. Incense. All right. Okay, let's let's go to the smells and bells thing. I should have bring one of those up here. Sorry for all you Reformed Catholics. Um, All right, let's. Anyone wants to venture a drawing? I have one at least, and I'm I'm able to throw these up on the screen for everyone to see. Okay. So um, uh, I think Ken and some of the other guys are going to collect drawings. Put your hands up if you've got one you want to share. Don't be shy. I've got one. So. Oh, there's one over here. All right, here we go. Okay, let's. 
<laughs> now, I don't know whether we'll be able to get through. Oh, check this out. Fantastic. All right. So, okay, here's our first one. Okay, so, so if you just refresh that, let's see what we've got. Sweet. All right. There is, oh, that's a shame. There is actually a sheep on that one, which is really nice that you quite there. Perfect. Isn't that great? Okay. What else? Okay. Oh, there's definitely a theme running through these. So let's, um, let's just take another one. Uh, okay. Oh, this is great. Okay. Um, um, right. Here's our next one. Yeah. Very good. All right, you drew that one. Some serious Eastern Orthodox action going on there. Wow, check it out. Um, we have a lot of... Um, oh, wow, this is a great Old Testament one. Um, so I know this is a bit odd, but it's kind of fun, isn't it? Um, all right, now watch. Okay, here we go. The priestly garments for the Old Testament. Look at that with the whole ephod with the, the uh, jewels on it and everything. Fantastic. Okay, there's more here than I can show. I've got some fantastic altars and sheep in bad situations. Um, <laughs> I, have to com- I have to confess to you, the, um, I come from a non-Christian background, right? I'm sure some of you do too. And when I first started running in Christian circles... A lot of the words that people use were a bit scary to me, um, and priest was definitely one of those. So um, when people start, started talking about priests, here's the image that came to my mind most naturally. Just refresh that. Anybody remember this guy? Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom. <laughs> oh, no. Anyway, yeah, that's... Um, <laughs> Probably not a particularly helpful addition to our sermon here. So anyway, I'm going to credit us all with, I guess, a little bit more experience in Christian things than I had at the start. Um, and I'm going to assume that as believers, a lot of us actually uh, already have something in mind about priests, which is informed by what we know of Jesus. I think that came from the wordsmiths among us. We heard a lot of things that were uh, uh, affected, informed by what we know about Jesus's priesthood. Uh, And I'm the same. Certainly that's become true of me as I've gone along this Christian journey. Uh, That when I think about the word priest these days, my mind goes almost immediately to the idea of mediator uh, that someone shouted out. Uh, A kind of go-between who makes sacrifices to God to deal with the sinfulness of God's people. So I picture Jesus acting as a priest on my behalf, offering his life in my place so that I might go free. We're familiar with that concept, aren't we? And it's wonderful. That's the gospel. Uh, That's the heart of the story. And we're going to spend a whole bunch of time over these nine weeks thinking about that, thinking about where it comes from, uh, basking in it, and uh, challenging ourselves to engage with it. But there is a certain upside-downness that I want us to see in this approach when what we know about priests comes mainly from what we already know about Jesus. Because the way that God intends it, he wants what we know about Jesus to come from what we already know about priests, right? That's the way that he wrote the story. And so to get that firm foundation, we need to go back into the Old Testament and start building our foundation in the right place. 
Now, there's certainly no shortage of information for us to work with. Uh, descriptions of priests and their responsibilities in the tabernacle and in the temple take up a huge amount of space in the uh, Old Testament parts of our Bibles. And there we see lots of the stuff that we just talked about, actually. A lot of the words, a lot of these images of uh, uh, mediators and sacrifices and so on. Um, uh, the priests absolutely function in that way. They stand in the presence of God. They offer sacrifice for sins. But if that's our only point of focus when we think about priests, we're going to miss some other really vital threads. And these threads are going to form the core of our message today. You see, when you start to dig back into it, you find that the priests in the Old Testament actually had a whole lot of other things to do, as well as offering sacrifices on behalf of God's people. Turns out first that the priests in the Old Testament had a governmental role. Uh, They had responsibility for the Israelite constitution, uh, for keeping it, for reading it, for interpreting it. Um, The temple then wasn't just a religious space. It was maybe uh, a little bit like the Library of Congress. Um, And the priests in it weren't just religious officials. They were maybe like Supreme Court judges in some ways. The priests in the Old Testament also had a housekeeping role, for want of a better word. Uh, Morning and evening, they uh, were charged with keeping uh, uh, the lamps lit in the temple. Uh, Morning and evening, they were in charge of mixing and burning this special incense that God had prescribed for the temple incense, someone mentioned. Um, Week by week, they laid out the bread of the presence, symbolizing God's willingness to have fellowship with his people in the temple. The priests in the temple also had a worship-leading role. Uh, They had responsibility for steering the people through the various rituals and feasts that God had established for them. They had responsibility for the music. They had responsibility for composing original psalms and uh, hymns and crafting testimonies. The priests in the Old Testament also had a guarding role. Time and again, actually, the Bible points us to this uh, uh, the important uh, role of a gatekeeper uh, that the priests often uh, were called on to play. They were charged with keeping unclean things out of God's sanctuary. even to the point of putting people to death who tried to cross the threshold without the right ritual purifications and the right credentials. And finally, the priests in the Old Testament have also got what you might call a representative role. Uh, You might remember that we came across this idea when we read about the kings of the Old Testament. Remember when David goes out to fight Goliath? He's not just fighting on his own account, is he? As far as the Philistines are concerned, David represents the people of Israel. If he can be defeated, all Israel is defeated with him. Uh, but for his own people, David also represents God. David showed the people of Israel something about God's character that day. That God was the kind of God who would step in and save, uh, even at the brink of apparently inevitable defeat. Well, in this series, we're going to find that much the same thing applies to priests. Just like the kings, the priests of the Old Testament stand before God on behalf of the people, and they also stand before the people on behalf of God. And what I want to show you here as we get started now, um, as we start to think about priests in this kind of rounder, more biblical way, is that all of these tasks of the priest mirror the tasks that God gave to Adam right at the very start of the story, and that's where we're going to go today. So, will you stand now? We're going to read God's word. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 26. I'm going to read it through to chapter 2, verse 2, and then I'm just going to read a little snippet from chapter 2, verses 15 to 17 as well. 
So starting at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And then just skipping forward to chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will surely die. Okay, that's God's word to us this morning, so let's take our seats and we'll see what it is that we have here. So remember as we got started this morning, um, we were talking about how Christians living after the time of Jesus uh, find it very easy to see priests solely as intermediaries who make sacrifices to God to deal with the sinfulness of God's people. And all of that stuff is good and true. But what I want us to see today is that it easily blinds us to something very important which is going on in these first two chapters of Genesis. Because in these first two chapters of Genesis, there is no sin. There's no need for an intermediary to go between a holy God and sinful human beings because human beings aren't sinful yet. And so we don't immediately see anything priestly about what's happening here, do we? It seems uh, that although some of the railway lines that run all the way through God's word begin in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, the priesthood line doesn't have a stop at this station. But if we step back uh, and let the whole Old Testament now shape our definition of what a priest is and does, uh, things start to look a little bit different. Remember that in addition to making atonement for sin, priests in the Old Testament have a governmental role. And that's right here in our text, isn't it? Genesis 1.28. God said to Adam, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. God is appointing Adam here as his ambassador. God is making Adam the bearer of his authority on the earth. God makes Adam the custodian of the laws uh, uh, that he has um, uh, given him so that he can put them into practice. Uh, and so that he can pass them on to his family um, and his descendants. And from the Old Testament perspective, then, that makes Adam a priest. 
Remember that in addition to making atonement for sin, priests in the Old Testament also had a housekeeping role. And that's right here in our text too, isn't it? What was it that Adam was asked to actually do in the garden? Well, in chapter 2, verse 15, we read that he was asked to be the gardener. He was given responsibility for working and taking care of it. Adam was in charge of horticultural housekeeping. Now, actually, under the surface here, uh, there are some even more compelling priestly details. It turns out that the two Hebrew verbs that are used uh, and translated as working and taking care of there in verse 15 only ever appear in combination like that through the whole of the rest of the Old Testament uh, when the Bible is describing the work of priests in the temple. So once again, we see Genesis 1 gently informing us that Adam is a priest. Remember next that in addition to making atonement for sin, priests in the Old Testament also had a worship-leading role. And that uh, was an intrinsic part of Adam's life in the garden too. We didn't quite get to it in our reading actually, but uh, in Genesis 2 verse 23, uh, Adam shows us what it looked like to be a man made in God's image, living as the recipient of God's good gifts, uh, when he wakes up one morning and finds himself face to face with Eve. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, he says. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So do you see, he notices what's happening around him, and he reflects on it. He thinks about what's happening around him, and then he declares his indebtedness to God for what it is that's happening around him. So he's a priest. He's leading creation in worship. Remember, in addition to making atonement for sin, priests in the Old Testament also had a guarding role. And that's right here in our text too. In Genesis 2, verse 17, Adam's given the responsibility for guarding his own heart against evil desires. But there also seems to have been a broader responsibility uh, for guarding the whole garden that was placed on Adam's shoulders. Uh, When Adam and Eve are thrown out of Eden, in chapter 3, you'll remember God installs these cherubim with flaming swords at the entrance to prevent them from ever coming back. But who was in charge of keeping evil things out of Eden before the cherubim were installed, before Adam fell? I think the natural answer is it was Adam himself. And he blew it badly. So once again, we see Adam there presented to us as a priest. And finally, remember that in addition to making atonement for sin, priests in the Old Testament also have a representative role. And that's right here in our text too, isn't it? In Genesis 1, verse 26, God initiates the whole story with these words, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And everything that follows bears uh, that out. In Genesis 1, God demonstrated that he rules over the chaos. And now he commissions Adam to maintain and to extend that rule. In Genesis 1, God fills the earth with life. Now he commissions Adam to fill the earth with his descendants. And tragically, we see in chapter 3, Uh, that Adam doesn't just represent God to human beings, but he also represents human beings before God. So the priesthood really does have a stop. That that, uh, line really does have a station here in Genesis 1 and 2. And it's a major station. The Bible wants to show us that Adam is a priest. Sure, we don't see him making atonement for sin, because sin isn't an issue here in the first two chapters of Genesis. But we do see him fulfilling a governmental role, We see him fulfilling a housekeeping role, a worship-leading role, a guarding role, and a representative role. And all of those things together say priest, just like uniform, squad car, handcuffs, and badge say police officer, right? 
And this is really important because it tells us something about us. I wonder if you ever find yourself asking uh, fundamental questions about who you are and why you're here. Often life is just too busy for this stuff, isn't it? But um, sometimes I guess the anesthesia of constant activity wears off for long enough uh, for us to find ourselves probing these things, maybe particularly when we're just knocked out of the ordinary by some major change in life, Um, maybe when we lose a job, maybe when we have our first child, or maybe if we get seriously sick. What are our lives really for? What are we supposed to be doing with our time? What are we, uh, where are we going? Is it even worth it? These are important questions, aren't they? Our ability to ask these questions is actually one of the distinguishing features that makes us human. And I think the, uh, the poverty of the answers that we get back from our secular world is one of the things that generally makes us so unhappy. You exist to succeed. There's a popular answer that immediately eliminates almost everyone. You exist to look prettier and prettier. There's another popular answer that's based on a total fantasy of what really makes for a healthy relationship, as well as turning a blind eye to the obvious fact that actually all of us will spend the vast majority of our lives getting steadily less pretty. (laughs) You exist to be true to the inner you. There's an answer that works just as well for Adolf Hitler as it does for Mother Teresa. And yet this is the garbage that we feed ourselves in the spot where we most need wholesome truth. Here in our text, though, we have a radical alternative. Of course, we all know that we're not what Adam was in these chapters anymore. We're fallen. By nature, we're just a burned out shell of what we were originally intended to be. But if we're believers here this morning, we need to know that God's plan for our lives is to remake in us what was lost at the fall. And here's what it looks like. God's intention for us is that we should be priests. He wants our hearts to be homes for the constitution of the new relationship that he's established with humanity. He wants us to garden that relationship, pruning and weeding and cultivating all of its rich fruits. He wants us to notice and reflect on his works in creation and in history and in our own experience and turn those reflections back into praise. He wants us to stand guard against the chaos, keeping evil out of our hearts and out of our homes, now that our hearts and homes are inhabited by the Spirit of God. And in all of this, he wants us to represent him before our neighbours and to represent our neighbours before him praying for them, pleading for them, that he will step into their lives and rescue them. Isn't that an amazing thing to know? Isn't that an amazing task to be given, an amazingly high calling? That from the least of us to the greatest in the eyes of the world, we're united by something that the world simply cannot give however hard it tries. We have purpose. We have a reason to live. We don't have to wake up in the morning and wonder whether it's even worth getting out of bed. We don't have to languish in the angst of not knowing what is or isn't a truly significant use of our time. God would have us be priests to ourselves, to our families, to our street corners and to anyone and anything that's out there to witness it. God would have us be what we were originally made to be. Now, while we're here in Genesis 1 and 2, thinking about Adam as a priest, 
I do want to call our attention to one more detail before we uh, move on to think a bit more about the implications of Genesis 3 for all of this. You see, there's a missing piece in this nice little jigsaw puzzle so far, isn't there? We've got our priest, but we haven't got a temple. Someone said that uh, out here in the congregation. That's a problem because throughout the rest of the Bible story, in fact, throughout the rest of the entire ancient world, priests and temples go together like ham and eggs, strawberries and cream, and I've put here like Andy Murray and Wimbledon Victory. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Only 77 years it took to get there. So, um, <laughs> so what is Adam doing here in Genesis 1 and 2, bearing all the key hallmarks of priesthood, but lacking a temple? doesn't even have a tabernacle to serve in, not even a tent. It seems a strange omission, doesn't it? But is, that isn't uh, actually uh, how we would have read this, I think, if we had lived in the ancient world from which these documents come. If we had lived in the ancient world, I think we would have seen the temple in this story really clearly. You see, in the ancient world, it turns out that there was a remarkable degree of agreement about the right way to design a temple, In Babylon and in Egypt and in Assyria, the basic layout was always the same. Temples were built with three distinct zones. Uh, There was an outer zone filled with images representing plants and animals. Um, Then there was a middle zone filled with images representing the air and the water. And then there was an inner zone filled with images representing the heavens uh, where the God of the temple lived. We can see this in Israel's own temple, actually. Let's just pop that up on the screen so that you can see how it looked. Perfect. So the outer court, the area out on this kind of pavement here, uh, is where we find the altar for animal sacrifices. That area depicts the earth. The holy place, which is the bulk of the building there that you can see with the gold floor, um, uh, represents the air with decorations on the wall representing this kind of forest canopy filled with winged cherubim. Uh, And then the holy of holies, the cube uh, structure at the back of the building, depicts the heavens and that's where God himself is present even the housekeeping activities of the priests actually reflect this structure bread for the earth incense for the air lights to represent the moon and the stars in the heavens thanks Rick and what was this design all about well it's obvious if you think about it temples in the ancient world were designed to be models of the cosmos walking into a temple was like going up in a spacecraft Uh, moving from the earth to the air to the heavens and into the presence of God. And that's exactly the kind of architectural abstraction of the cosmos that we find in Genesis 1, isn't it? Follow it along with me. The first day of creation begins in the inner zone, the heavens, establishing the light and the darkness. The second day moves to the middle zone, the air and the water, establishing the workings of the weather. The third day moves to the outer zone, the dry land, establishing the conditions required for agriculture. And then days four, five, and six uh, repeat the same journey, establishing the, uh, the people who are going to, or the beings and creatures that are going to fulfill the functions of these uh, different zones. So day four returns to the inner zone, the heavens, and sets the stars and the planets in place as markers of time. Day five returns to the middle zone, the air and the water, setting birds and fishes in their places. And then day six returns to the outer zone, the dry land, setting animals and human beings in their places. So do you see what Genesis 1 is setting out to teach? It doesn't just tell us that Adam is a priest. It tells us that the whole of creation is a temple. 
And that makes sense, I think, of this curious account of the seventh day. You see, just like every other temple in the ancient world, the purpose of it all was to create a place in which the God of the temple could rest. And not meaning rest as in putting your feet up, but rest as in the opposite of unrest. Rest that sees all creation now set on its correct footing and open for business. On the seventh day, God enters his temple, the storm is stilled, and the show begins. And this, I think, is probably the primary message that Genesis 1 has to teach us. All of us, I'm sure, are aware that uh, this text has become a battleground for competing theories about the material origins of the universe. But the more we try and read it that way, um, sorry, the more we try and read it the way that the original readers would have uh, uh, read it and heard it, the more it seems to me that we may well be just missing the point. Genesis 1 and 2 probably has much more to say about the purpose for which God's creation was made uh, than it does about the mechanics of how it was made. Genesis 1 and 2 is probably best read as a description of the way that God set the material world in order uh, so as to fulfill its intended function. And what was that function? Well, God created the universe to function as a temple, as a place where men and women can live safely and serve meaningfully as priests, bearing his image and continuing the work uh, and reflecting uh, the character of God. And the priorities of God uh, to the ends of the earth. That same conclusion, I think, falls out when you start to look hard at what the Bible says about the tabernacle and the temple later in the Old Testament story. Uh, When we watch the way that those structures were inaugurated, and we see a striking resemblance to what happens here in Genesis 1. If you look in the book of Exodus, find that the establishment of the tabernacle is driven by seven words from God, uh, just as we see in Genesis 1. And the final word strikes the same note of rest on the seventh day. In 1 Kings and in 2 Chronicles, we find that Solomon took seven years to build his temple, that he completed it in the seventh month and that he dedicated it with seven petitionary prayers, concluding with the declaration that God had given rest to his people. And so it seems that Genesis 1 and 2 uh, probably has less to say about creating than it does about the inauguration of creation for the purpose that God made it. God made the world to be his temple and us within it to be his priests. So where have we got to? Well, Genesis 1 and 2 give us Adam as a priest uh, and the world as God's temple. But that clearly isn't the way that things stayed. In Genesis 3, uh, we watch as the whole thing begins to unravel. Uh, The one with responsibility for governing in God's name rebelled against God's government. The one with the responsibility for taking care of God's creation decided that it would be much better just to take care of himself. The one with responsibility for worshipping God uh, ended up worshipping something that absolutely wasn't God. The one with responsibility for keeping evil out of the garden ended up being kept out of the garden himself. The one entrusted with the very image of God, the highest privilege in all creation, set light to it and watched it burn to cinders in front of his eyes. Yes, priesthood is what we're made for. Priesthood is the key that can unlock all our longings for purpose and significance. But priesthood is denied to us as things stand at the end of Genesis 3. And that's still the world that we live in today. We only need to read the newspapers to realise this, don't we? Are we content to live under God's laws? 
I don't think so. We're determined to redefine law so that it sanctions whatever desires our selfish hearts want to pursue. Are we effective in taking care of creation? I don't think so. Since human civilization first emerged, biologists estimate that the rate at which species are dying out on our planet has risen by a thousand times. The journal Nature recently reported that between 30 and 50% of all the species currently living on planet Earth will be extinct before the end of this century. Just think about that. We're more like a disease here than a blessing. Does the presence of humanity on Earth bring God praise? Not unless we close our eyes to all the self-centeredness and all the greed and all the bloodshed. Do we do a good job of guarding order against the chaos, of guarding innocence against corruption? Do we do a good job of representing the character of God to a watching world? No, no, and no. And I hope that each of us in our own hearts can see that although that's a big picture of what's happening in the broader reality of uh, the life of our race, that it's also an accurate picture of what's happening in the narrow reality of my own life. (coughs) This is exactly how things should have stayed. In fact, things should have got worse and worse because all of these evil actions have consequences. Chaos has an inherent inner energy to reproduce itself. The sins of the fathers can't help but affect the lives of the children. Humanity should have descended back into the abyss from which God brought everything into order at the start. But that's not how this story ends. You see, the Bible tells us that amazingly, God saw that great fall coming. And despite it, in fact, even through it, he would tell a more wonderful story of his goodness and power than ever would have been told if things had run according to the script of Genesis 1 and 2. So even in the very chapter of Genesis where the collapse comes, God speaks a message of hope for the future. He tells us that a saviour will one day come to buy back everything that had been lost. God speaks of a second Adam, a son of the woman who would crush Satan's head and destroy all the chaos that he had unleashed. And the New Testament writers believed that they had met him. Listen to the opening words of the book of Hebrews with me. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Did you catch all the Adam references there? Like Adam, the Son bears the image of God. He allows us to see the radiance of God's glory in a way that we can understand Like Adam, the son rules in the name of God, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Like Adam, the son is the rightful representative of God to men and of men to God. He's the exact representation of God's being. And like Adam, the son has been handed the keys to creation, having been appointed the heir of all things. Adam was the priest and he blew it. But now there's a new candidate for that role. And I think that leaves us with some very important questions to ponder as we close here. You see, if Jesus is the priest in Adam's place, he's reclaiming Adam's governmental responsibilities. Do you remember what he said in Matthew 5? I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. 
Jesus has come to remake our lives as little temples and to install his law in each of our hearts. He wants us to read it. He wants us to delight in it. He wants us to hold ourselves accountable to it. Jesus hasn't come just to be a comforting friend. Jesus has come to be the boss. If Jesus is the priest in Adam's place, he's also come to be the housekeeper. Jesus isn't content for us just to go through the motions of faith, looking like temples on the outside, but full of junk on the inside. Jesus has come to help us get serious about godliness, to instill some discipline, to help us want him more than we want other things. Jesus has come to do battle with our temptations, to help us walk that path of slowly suffocating our weaknesses by denying them the oxygen of use. If Jesus is the priest in Adam's place, he's also come to be the worship leader. And I wonder whether we have any idea of how profoundly we need that. You see, we were made for worship, and we're uniquely equipped for it. Sure, the created world gives God praise in its beauty and its intricacy and in its raw power, but all of it is mute compared with our capacity to see and then reflect on what we see and turn it back into active praise. Praise that comes to God as a matter of personal choice. Praise that names God as our all and our every. And that is what Jesus has come to liberate in us. Not necessarily that we would suddenly feel that all uh, immediately. After all, nobody ever felt fit until they spent at least some time doing some exercise. We have to give worship some time to do its work in us before it can feel as natural to us as we, I'm sure, all wish that it would. But that's the work that Jesus wants to lead. He wants to lead us in the adoration of God. If Jesus is the priest in Adam's place, he's also come to be the God Do you remember how Adam was charged with keeping evil out of God's presence? Well, that's the role that Jesus now plays in Adam's place. And we all need to understand that he means business. Jesus was so passionately determined to see the integrity of God's place of rest maintained that he left the garden voluntarily to find us. The only reason that his people find themselves in is because he came out into the mess and the chaos. He considered all of that a price worth paying in order that the purity of Eden might be preserved. Now that should give us pause if we're not sure that we yet know him. If Jesus is the priest, now guarding the way back into the garden, we don't want to find ourselves trying to get past him without our sins forgiven. Humanity is part of the problem now, right? And he will resist us if we have spent our lives resisting him. In John's vision of the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21, we're told that nothing impure will ever enter it. And we better believe that that means us. If Jesus' work to save human beings isn't something that we've named and clung onto as our own. And if Jesus is the priest in Adam's place, he's also come to be the representative Jesus represents God to us, and um, uh, he does it, I think, in the kindest and most clear way imaginable. We're not left grasping for abstract concepts anymore like so many. You know, uh, so many people live with trying to get their head around the idea of God as a force or uh, God as some kind of void or God as the solution to some kind of abstract equation. 
Now, Jesus has made God accessible to us in a form that we can understand from the least of us to the greatest. In Jesus, God came to us as a person. Jesus said to his disciples, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Though we'll never comprehend God, we can know what God is like. He's like Jesus. And yet still more wonderfully, God also, sorry, Jesus also represents us to God. And that's the place where all these threads finally join. How could he bring us back into the garden and still maintain his integrity as the one guarding the garden against all evil? He did it by taking our place. He did it by absorbing all those consequences of our sinfulness, all of our selfishness, all of our greed and destructiveness, all of our discontent, our poor stewardship, our unwillingness to worship, our indifference to evil, and bearing all those things as if those were things that he had done and he had thought himself. On the cross, Jesus represented us. He stood for us. He bled for us. He hung for us. He died for us so that we could return to the garden and be again what God always intended us to be, priests of God in the temple of God, which will one day cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now we're going to spend some time responding to God in song now. Um, And then after that, I'm going to lead us all in a a prayer of confession, something that we don't often do here. But it just feels that there's a... uh, a weightiness to this uh, that some of us might want to uh, move into and, uh, and grasp hold of. If you feel uh, an awareness of your, uh, how well represented you are by Adam and how much you need to be represented by Jesus in his stead, uh, this stuff might be for you.